think there's a misconception out there among many folks that the technology itself is fundamentally new somehow. And in fact, that's that's not the case. I mean, industry has been removing carbon dioxide from various gas streams at, at very large scale for decades. Hi, all. Welcome back again to Generate, another fantastic and exciting episode. I'm Brett Rampal, Director of Nuclear and Power Strategies at Veriton, and along with me, as always, Jeff Tillery, our COO. Today's guest is Mike Fowler, Vice President of Business Development in the Engineered Systems Division at Mitsubishi Heavy Industries America, previously worked with me at Clean Air Task Force and has rejoined sort of the private discussions uh, around some of the harder topics around energy decarbonization, working with Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, deeply focused on carbon capture markets and carbon capture technology. So we're super excited to have Mike here and have Mike join us today. So Mike, first off, just want to say thanks again for joining us and looking forward to this conversation with you today. Thank you, Brett. Very happy to be here. Awesome. So, you know, the first question I have for you is, what does the carbon capture market look like today and how is that different from five years ago and even just a year ago? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, the, the, I would say the carbon capture market, especially in the United States at this moment, is is a very exciting place to be. There's an awful lot of interest and an awful lot of activity today that we we certainly didn't see five years ago. Five years ago, there were some, I would say, some pioneering project developers and some pioneering technology companies who understood that this could be a very important technology for decarbonization uh, in the future and were willing to willing to put themselves out there to start developing projects or you know, developing technology to, to work in this space. But the overall level of activity five years ago was was pretty modest. Um, we had the Petronova project, we had the Boundary Dam project, we had some few other things happening. But for the most part, um, things things were not, I would say, on the verge of taking off for a number of reasons that, that we probably get into. Uh, today, uh, that's that's totally different. And one of the, the primary differences that we see is the Inflation Reduction Act. And the 45Q tax credit has really, um, really provided a lot of impetus to this space that, that was missing that was missing before. There's still more to do. I don't think that this is going to take off like the iPhone without some further <laughs> further changes in the market structure. But it is it is a, a much more interesting and vibrant place than it was it was five years ago. And we're we're very excited to see all the changes and to be supporting a lot of customers who are who are exploring the space and, and starting to move forward with some great projects. And in that vein, Mike, you mentioned 45Q. Can you just talk about the government support mechanisms? And, you know, obviously they change the, the, the character of the market by providing some visibility around, you know, just economic return. But just, you know, maybe talk about some character of the market pre-IRA versus post-IRA. Was it, was it, you know, with the snap of a fingers with IRA, did the market just accelerate? I, I'd just be great to hear your color because you know, this is obviously a market segment you guys have been spending time on even pre-IRA. Yes, indeed, indeed, and there were there pre-IRA there were incentives as well. So it it's, it's, wouldn't be fair to say there was nothing happening or no way for no visibility to economics. But but his, there's been a step change. You know, I, I don't think it will surprise either of you or any of your your listeners to know that you know there's really been been no strong 
economic driver for CO2 emissions reductions in the United States for, for many years. Right? And there's a lot of talk about the importance of climate, the importance of CO2 emissions reductions, the importance of decarbonization. But in terms of you know, really concrete drivers for, for action, um, we've been in a, in a fairly, um, fairly minimal, minimal space, fairly, fairly, fairly tepid, I would say, drivers. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of things like uh, production tax credits for wind, driving, you know, wind installation, a lot of, a lot of conversion from you know, use of coal to use of natural gas. Uh, a lot of that just based on the on the fundamental economics of the fuels. Uh, but we haven't seen a lot of folks taking action because they had a real driver to reduce their emissions below some some modest level and they could they could somehow monetize monetize that that action or they they had no choice and they they had to they had to take those actions. With with 45Q, fundamentally what happened with IRA is the 45Q value increased substantially. Um, and uh, with that increase now there really is enough money on the table to make some carbon capture projects viable and go forward. And I think that's what's really changed changed the game is is, is developers, uh, emitters can 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 do some some study work and some some pretty easy math and say, wow, you know, eighty five dollars a ton times you know a million tons a year times twelve years that's a lot of money. I should be able to do something useful with that. And so that's really kind of kind of sparked a lot of a lot of interest, a lot of interest in action. Um, but as I said, you know, I don't think it's a it's necessarily a, a, a complete solution in the sense that just that 45Q value that we have today alone won't cover every every conceivable project out there. You know, so we're starting to see a lot of action. Uh, it's very encouraging. Uh, but I do think, you know, there's there's except for the advantage projects today. To get to the less advantaged projects, we will need other incentives or other things coming along down the road. How do you think about the, the technical challenges on the carbon capture side, you know, the, the Mitsubishi focus area, fully acknowledging, you know, there are some dynamics downstream of you guys, whether it be permitting or, or legal challenges, but just purely around the technology, could you characterize where you are today and, and what challenges you see in the near to medium term? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. It's something that we spend a, a great deal of time on within within NHI, both in our you know, commercial teams, but also the R&D teams. When it comes to carbon capture technology, I think there's a misconception out there among many folks that the technology itself is fundamentally new somehow. And in fact, that's that's not the case. I mean, industry has been removing carbon dioxide from various gas streams at, at very large scale for decades, especially in the, uh, the ammonia and the fertilizer industries. There's a great deal of experience with carbon capture there, you know, millions and millions of tons a year. And even in, in the part of the business or part of the space that, that I work in, which is what's called post-combustion carbon capture, which is removing CO2 out of exhaust gases, of downstream of a combustion source, there are decades of experience in that space as well. In fact, MHI's first commercial project for car- post-combustion carbon capture was in 1999. Um, and there were projects before that using using similar technologies from others. Uh, and around the world, there have been, been dozens of projects using post-combustion capture. Um, but these have tended to be driven by a local need for CO2 for some process industry or something. They haven't been driven by an environmental mandate or an economic, you know, mandate for economic returns. Uh, and so they've been, been fairly small, fit for purpose, and not at the scale that we have in the utility industry today for emissions. 
And I think that's really fundamentally the economic or the rather the technological challenge that we have today is going from these this established technology that works well in certain niches and at certain scales and scaling it up to the point where it can be deployed at millions and millions of tons scale at individual sites and at dozens and dozens of sites uh, around the country. And that's, you know, that's a tough hill to climb because those are expensive projects that take a while to develop. You'd have very committed partners. Uh, and when, when, you, when you get all that together, then the technology advances uh, and you can learn by doing through deployment. But getting to that point of scale and bringing that back into the technology, that's, that's where we're at today. And that, it's been difficult to get there with the sort of market drivers that we've had. You talked about a little bit just now about MHIA's long focus on sort of carbon capture as well as, you know, the, the different experience bases around that and, and technology bases around it, you know, and, and kind of you yourself kind of represent a, a bit of an even a dichotomy in your background around, you know, technological approaches, all sorts of different things. You're a two-time MHIA employee, you're a two-time uh, NGO employee, you know, back and forth between Clear Task Force and MHI for the last several years. Um, and you even, you know, have a nuclear engineering degree in addition to focusing on, you know, this sort of technology. So, you know, a little bit kind of more about why you personally are back focused in this technology and maybe how you think MHIA's focus has changed or grown or, or, or you know, contracted. You know, maybe that would be a little bit of interest for our listeners very quickly. Sure, absolutely. You know, I, I was first exposed to carbon capture back in, I think it was about 2001. At that point, I was working for the state of New Mexico, and I was I was what was called an air permit engineer. And I was reviewing permit applications for a bunch of new coal-fired power plants that were proposed in the Four Corners area. And some consultancy or other, I can't remember which one at this point, had, had written this sort of white paper on this notion, hey, we could take this coal, we could capture this CO2, send it through a pipe down to Texas to be sequestered, and then send the electricity off to California to solve some of their you know, grid problems that they were having at that time. And you know, natural gas prices were very high at that time. And so this actually looked to me like a really interesting way of solving a, a number of both energy problems and environmental problems and you know, the CO2 problem. And I got the bug at that time. And so for the last 20 plus years, trying to bring projects like that to reality, to fruition, has been you know, the primary focus of my, my work. Although, as you point out, I did dabble in nuclear engineering at one point, but hopefully the, hopefully the chemical engineers won't hold that against me for too long. And, and, and fundamentally, I've tried to move that uh, forward using whatever I thought was sort of the best set of tools at my disposal at any one time. And, you know, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is a, had a very long-term commitment to the carbon capture space. It actually grew out of the company's commitment to other kinds of air pollution control, sulfur control, NOx control. Uh, back when we were doing a lot of coal-fired boilers, you know, 30 years ago, uh, there was a recognition that that carbon dioxide was the next pollutant that we needed to manage. And the company said, all right, well, let's get into that space. I became aware of that, you know, 15 years ago. Um, and so have always, uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries commitment to that space maybe 15 years ago. And so I've always, I've always been interested in trying to, to support what the leading company was doing uh, in this in this space. My time with, with CHF has been more looking at the problem from the other angle, which is, the economics I mentioned, there aren't strong drivers for decarbonization in the U.S. at the moment, policy-wise. And without those drivers, no one's going to do CCS. 
And without those drivers, there's a lot of things people won't do. They won't, they won't convert to hydrogen either. I mean, you need a reason to spend this extra money to do these things. And so my time at CATF has really been focused on policy alignment to get those supports in place, like the IRA. I wish I could take personal credit for the IRA. I can't, but, um, you know, I like to think I played a small role in bringing a very important thing about, and and that that's what's enabled the CCS market that I'm supporting on the commercial side now to, to expand the takeoff. All of us that worked on that those days like to think the IRA as our baby, right? And everything like, so I, <laughs> yeah. I totally understand. I totally understand. Um, you kind of alluded to it just quickly that um, the IRA, you know, kind of, again, stepwise change, all that opening. The MHIA may have been thinking about this for a long time, but it seems like this is probably, uh, you know, a doorway to many new uh, sort of entities, organizations, companies, industries to kind of be thinking about carbon capture technology more. So which new players or industries do you think are are making entrant or are going to be making like the strongest sort of entrant into this, uh, you know, burgeoning, you know, and growing carbon capture market? Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a really interesting question, a really interesting space. I, I would say that something like half of the interest that we're, we're seeing right now is from the power sector, um, but the other half is industrial. And so that includes cement, wine production, uh, iron and steel, chemical industry, players and companies who typically haven't been part of the carbon capture conversation. Uh, they may have been, you know, especially in this case of the chemical industry, they may be in, have been doing some of it quietly for their own you know, production processes, but they didn't, you didn't see them at, at the conferences so much and you didn't see them on the policy playing field so much. That's really changed. And, you know, I think there's a lot of some of that's just general decarbonization pressure, even though it hasn't manifested itself in policy as much in the United States. I think, you know, industrial, um, you know, iron and steel, cement, those sorts of things, chemicals, they understand that in the marketplace they're in, they need to have a lower carbon product over time. Um, but the ability to recover costs for a carbon capture project through 45Q has brought a lot of new people from these other industries to the table and who are seriously exploring, seriously exploring projects, you know, going, going into feed on cement plants, uh, working on or funding pilot plants on, on pilot carbon capture plants on cement and lime plants, um, working on pilot plants in the, in the iron and steel space, whether it's existing blast furnaces or sort of newer direct reduction iron technology. So there's a, there's a lot more happening across that industrial landscape on the CCS side than, than we had a few years ago. And that, I see that it's both exciting in its own right, um, but it's also, I think, it's, it's emblematic of the, the growth in this sector that it's bringing in these new, these new industries. But to follow up on, on that, on the point of the new industries, I mean, we all, you know, we all love our children, you know, equally, of course, but which of the industries, you know, feel, do you feel the most optimistic about Near to near term action versus longer term action. You know, who's kind of window shopping versus you know really shopping? I would say they're they're all all of the ones I mentioned. You know, iron and steel, cement, chemicals. They're all um, they're all really shopping, not just window shopping, but for various for various reasons. You know, I think the iron and steel industry plays internationally. You know, and so although there may be there may be weaker carbon drivers in the United States than in Europe today, Europe's talking a lot about, you know, border adjustments. And so, you know, carbon, carbon-based border adjustments. 
And I think you know, th that provides some motivation for the, the iron and steel industry in the U.S. to take seriously, well, how can we reduce the carbon footprint of our product one way or another? Because we've got, you know, we play in this international space. I see that. That's, to my mind, that's a big driver for them. Um, the cement and lime industry, alternatively, you know, less of an international industry. But when you, when you look at the, the suite of technical solutions that can really make a dent in CO2 emissions from cement and lime, it, there's not much out there except for some kind of carbon capture. The, the fundamental chemistry of calcining limestone produces CO2. And you really can't get around that, even if you invented some perfectly you know, carbon-free fuel, even if you could do it with, with hydrogen, you still have all of that CO2 coming off uh, from the, the fundamental chemistry. So that's an industry that if they are going to reduce their emissions directly up, you know, within the boundary of the plant site, carbon captures basically must, must do for them. And you know, they're, they're under a lot of pressure to provide some pathways and explanations to investors and customers about how they're going to get to net zero by 2050, just like the rest of us, carbon capture has got to be a part of the portfolio that they're working on. And, you know, that doesn't mean they're necessarily working with MHI on it. They might be talking to other vendors. They might have slightly different flavors of the carbon capture um, system that they're, that they're pursuing, but carbon capture itself, I think is pretty fundamental in that industry. And then you get to the chemical industry. Um, and I think the, the drivers in that industry may yet again be different, but this is an industry that has an awful lot of experience with things like carbon capture already. So this is less of a, less of a jump for them. They're used to handling these kind of gas streams and these kind of process units. Um, it's pretty easy for them to get oriented on the space and figure out what they, what they need to do. To circle back on the technology discussion from a couple of questions ago, you talked about you know, scaling as, as, as the challenge. I'd wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail around that. Is it, is it an engineering question? Is it a cost of materials question? I mean, I'm just curious to, uh, for a little bit more um, color on how you, how you stack up the challenges. Sure. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, technically, I think the, the technical perspective and the cost perspective are very much intertwined when it comes when it comes to scaling. You could, you know, you could hypothetically build a lot of very small carbon capture units and get a lot of carbon capture, but that would be a very expensive way to go about to go about doing it, and it would take up a lot of space, and um, you know, you'd have a lot of other issues with that. So, what you want, obviously, is is you know, for for a larger carbon capture installation, you'd like to have a, a relatively limited number of large CO2 capture units on site. But getting to that larger scale, scaling up the parts of the system that contact the, the exhaust gases, for example, scaling up you know, in, in MHI system, we call that our absorber. It's where the CO2 is absorbed out of the flue gas and into our, into our proprietary solvent. Um, scaling up an absorber uh, has, has risks associated with it for companies that, that are, don't have as much experience as they, they might in that space. Uh, we, we've done a lot of work on scaling up our absorber. And as I mentioned, we based it on our experience with flue gas desulfurization decades ago. So we're very comfortable doing that. But even so, when we are confronted with a large project, making sure that we're getting that right and that we can deliver a product to the customer that will do the job we've said it will do and doing it at the price that we've said we can deliver it for is, is a non-trivial non exercise, right? Uh, and so these, these large, you know, essentially first of a kinds that, that various folks are, are developing now, there are challenges with that scale up just because of the, the physical size that we're, we're dealing with. You see the same thing in CO2, CO2 compressors. You know, it's a CO2 compressor. There are hundreds of CO2 compressors around the world, but the biggest one in the world is at the Petronova project in Texas, 
that we provided, um, you know, several years ago. To go bigger than, can you go bigger than that? Well, of course, there's no fu- fundamental physical barriers, but that's a that's a very big piece of equipment already. You're talking about making it bigger. There are scaling issues there that need to be considered when you're talking about a commercial project. I know you didn't ask this, but I will. I do want to flip it around. The advantage of, of the larger scale is then bringing down the cost, though. And as we can con- continue to scale up, as we can continue to to deploy multiple multiple installations and get the learning by doing at those larger scales. I think that's where we really will see the cost start to drop pretty fundamentally over the next 10 years or so. That was, that was great color, Mike. I think to round out, you know, the cost discussion kind of goes to, to, a, to a more fulsome economics. You know, how do you see, you know, the total range of, of costs, you know, both investment and, op- and operating costs for the opportunities that are you know, visible for you? Now, how does that compare to you know, the, the, the various politically generated costs of carbon, or, or maybe a, a different way to say it is talk about the range of project kind of economics um, that, that, that you're seeing. I would say the most fundamental economic metric that, or the most common economic metric that people like to work in is, of course, dollars per ton of CO2. Even within that, there are some variations on what's really being discussed. Is it dollars per ton captured or dollars per ton avoided, which are not precisely the same things, but can leave that we can leave that nuance to the uh, the editing room floor, perhaps. Um, when it comes to the cost of, of, of capturing CO2, you know, there are some projects that are pretty widely acknowledged to be, I would say, under something like $50 per ton. Those are places where you have a relatively pure stream of CO2 available already. You know, so coming off a, a fermenter, you know, an ethylene, sorry, an ethanol production facility, or you have a relatively pure stream of CO2 coming off an ammonia plant already or similar things. Gathering that CO2, dehydrating it, compressing it, sending it through a pipe, putting it into the ground. You know, I'd say most most folks agree that under $50 a ton is probably pretty reasonable for that. Uh, and, you know, the social cost of carbon is, well, I know there's disagreement about that metric, how you calculate it, what it represents, but I think I think the official social cost of carbon for what it's worth is $50 a ton or so today. So that's a proposition that, you know, maybe the social cost of carbon itself on some terms can justify those projects, even though it's it's not cash. So there's some policy that needs to be done there. You know, the next the next metric up I'd look at is the $85 per ton that's in the 45Q. Once you get up to $85 a ton, I think you can bring in a lot more a lot more projects. I think you can bring in carbon capture on power generation and industrial projects that happen to be, for one reason or another, advantaged. Maybe they're you know they're sitting right on top of great sequestration, and they have you know good access to bring in equipment and construction labor and all these other things, so you can execute the projects at a you know competitive price. We'll we'll definitely see some of those projects come in at eighty five and be able to move. But then there are going to be quite a few that that can't, I think. You know, you start looking about combined cycle power plant in upstate New York or something like that. You know, they're a long way from known sequestration. It's an expensive part of the world to build things. I don't, unless, well, I haven't seen one of those that would come in at under 85. You know, they would be in that north of 85 range. Um, And so you just, you have this kind of spectrum that depends on the size of the project, the kind of, you know, the kind of gas stream you'd be capturing CO2 from all the sort of project execution variables. And so I certainly some of them, uh, I think will be competitive with 45Q. Uh, an awful lot of them, I think, need a bit more than that uh, in general to go forward if we're really gonna see a lot of projects. Well, really cool, Mike. And if, if carbon capture technology were not to see 
widespread adoption? What would be the levers that cause you know this technology not to be adopted as widely as MHIA yourself, others you know might hope? Well, that's a that's a great question. That's a great question. I, I think the reasons we might not see widespread carbon capture technology adoption are several. You know, one could be the somewhat depressing prospect that folks give up on climate change. I mean, if we just decide as a society that we don't want to bother with decarbonization, then I don't see a lot of CCS going forward. I mean, there will be some taking advantage of this 45Q just purely for the financial gains, but that won't be a big groundswell. You know, most people will go on with their lives as usual. So we really, this is a technology that that fundamentally is pollution control for CO2. And if the world doesn't want that pollution control, then it, then it's, we're not going to see that, that adoption. Um, and that, you know, to me, in a, in a practical sense, looking at the U.S. in particular, that means some additional market signals or policy signals beyond the incentive side. I hate to, I hate the carrots and sticks metaphor or analogy. I certainly don't want to call for a stick, but I think a a trajectory toward that that, that allows emitters to understand where they need to be at certain times and makes it clear that if they're not there, they're not going to be in as competitive a position compared to their peers or something. We really do need that fundamentally to move the space on a large on a large scale. Now, what that looks like is a topic for you know lots of argument, probably lots of court cases in Washington and other things, I suppose. But you know, the reality is, I think in addition to the incentive side that we got, you know, if we don't have if we don't have other drivers, other policy drivers for decarbonization, we will not see the widespread adoption that we really need. Well, Mike, really, really appreciate you visiting with us today. I think, you know, I learned a lot about MHIA's business and carbon capture market more broadly. Super, super valuable for me. I hope it's been as valuable to our audience as well. Uh, you know, Jeff. No, no further questions, um, but I just want to thank Mike for, for his time and his, his insights because CCS, like so many other of these um, topics, get glossed over the details. And so I especially appreciate your insight around challenges and scaling um, and just you know, what you're seeing you know, practically with boots on the ground. Well, I'm, I'm happy, to, happy, to, happy to share. The one thing I would say, uh, in addition to the comments I made already, is the level of interest that we're seeing in CCS today just based on the incentive, you know, even without these other other things we're talking about in terms of widespread adoption, really is really is unprecedented, and it's an extremely exciting time to be in the industry. I mean, to me, this is very much a watch this space over the next several years as these projects you know, kind of emerge under the public public dialogue, and we get to watch them progress and succeed. I think it'll be I think it'll be very exciting for folks. Thank you so much, Mike. I think all of us are, you know, excited about any projects that move the dial. And it sounds like you're, you know, sort of sitting around and looking at lots of projects like that. So we we wish you the most success. We wish MHIA and your customers the most uh, success. Again, thank you, Mike Fowler, Vice President, Business Development, Engineered Systems Division at Mitsubishi Heavy Industries America.